make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. Right. So welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Kaya Alexander, and this is one of my secret knock calls. And we're also recording it with a live audience for the podcast, the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with my co-host, Sylvia Franklin. I'm so excited to be here today with you. For those of you who haven't met me or don't know me yet, I am the founder of the Entertainment Business School, which is teaches the business side for above the line creatives of the entertainment industry. So I'm always excited to interview special guests that can illuminate a corner of the map for us as we get to learn from them and hear their perspectives and stories. And our special guest today is a really exciting one. This is Cindy Begel. She is a comedy writer. I met her on Twitter and just was swept away by her magic right away. So let me tell you about Cindy. We're so excited. She's with us today. She's a writer-producer who has worked on staff or freelance for over 30 classic sitcoms, and some not so classic. Her background includes both multi- and single-cam series, animation, and was one of the writers for the hugely popular film, The Flintstones. She worked for Gary Marshall, Norman Lear, and sadly, now even Bill Cosby, although he was maybe a different human being back then, <laughs> as we remember him. Her shows are incredible and include pretty much all of my favorite shows from my childhood. And I've seen every episode, so it's really exciting to talk to her. She was on Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mark and Mindy, Joni Loves Chachi, The Jeffersons, Head of the Class, Alice, Married with Children. Mama's family. The new Leave It to Beaver, and one of my classmates was actually on that show back in the day. The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, the Martin's Short Show, and co created the animated series The Kids from Room 402. And she also co wrote all 52 episodes. Most recently, she wrote for the Muppet Babies on the Disney Channel. And she's recently finished a darkly comedic semi-autobiographical novel that sounds really juicy. It's called Morgan Keller Takes a Deep Breath about a determined young woman who struggles to hide a devastating health secret that threatens to destroy both her career as a TV comedy writer and her, um, and she finally falls head over, feel, head over heels in love. So yay, I'm so excited to be here with Cindy. Cindy, welcome. Hi, everybody. Hi, Kaya. Hi. Um, where are we? Where are we talking to you today? Where am I? Oh, I, I'm in New York. And you're in New York. When you were working on these shows, were you in LA? Yes, I live in LA. I'm here during the pandemic with my mother. Oh, okay, okay. Well, we're glad you guys are are well. I'm excited to talk to you because you were working in television at a time when it was like so many men. So I'm really curious. What sparked it for you, your career? How did you break in? What excited you about becoming a TV comedy writer? Um, I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. And um, I went to grad school for that. And um, they had no classes in broadcast journalism. But they did have um, writing for media, features or television. So I took that class and um, I just chose to write a sitcom. I liked I Love Lucy. And at the time, Laverne and Shirley had just gone on the air. And I thought that was kind of like I Love Lucy. Maybe I'll just try to write one of those. So it started like that. So I, I wrote uh, Laverne and Shirley. Didn't know at all what I was doing. And then I ended up writing another one in another class. 
And then what happened was there was a producer who came to class. He was a producer director. And in my naivety, I said, well, do you know Gary Marshall? And he said, yeah. I said, do you think you could give my script to him? And he said, yeah. So um, he went off. He lived in Beverly Hills. And I never heard from him. So I just called information. And I asked for him. And I just called him. And I said, um, I met you in my class. Did you ever give my script to Gary Marshall? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about this. So that that didn't go anywhere. But I really decided that's what I wanted to do. So I told the entire world I wanted to be a writer. And people had contacts. They would give me. This is like a really important point. It's like everybody knows somebody. And I had names and numbers. It was a hairdresser. It was a cousin. And what happened was my mother had told a friend of hers what I was doing. And she said, oh, that's funny. I have a nephew. Who, who has done a, you know, was a writer on Laverne and Shirley. You know, he wasn't a staff writer. He was on a different show. Um, she could call him. So I had his number also. Went out to LA for two weeks, called everybody except that guy because I was too scared. <laughs> so a couple oh! of days, yeah, a couple of days before I was leaving, I, I worked up the courage to call him. And his wife answered the phone. I was before cell phones when you had to go through somebody else. And she invited me over. So there's another lesson. Be nice to spouses because they're the gatekeepers. You know, you just kind of never, you kind of never know who, who could say no and just block you someplace. Mm -hmm. That's really true. Assistants, you know, you've got to make those friends so that they don't just cut the contact. <laughs> it's true. I mean, now it's a cell phone, but you kind of just really never know. If somebody says, I don't like that person, <laughs> you know, you're out. Mm -hmm. So the other thing was I put the script in the car. I didn't want to walk in with a script. So that's the other thing. I put it in the trunk. <laughs> and then I thought I would tell them about myself and hope that they would ask. And that's what happened. So he asked for my scripts. I gave him the scripts. He gave it to his boss. His, it was, he was on a different show. And the boss was one of the co-writers, the co-creators of Laverne and Shirley. That guy read my scripts and then invited me to lunch. So that, <clears throat> so I had waited very late in the process. I didn't have a whole lot of time and they invited me to the set. So it was just, you know, at the studio, I had lunch there. I got to sit in a writer's meeting. I got to actually see what the job was because I think people don't really know what the job is like. How, how would you know? So I got to sit in the writer's room, which was pretty fun. And I saw how they did it and I saw them pitch. I remember the jokes. I remember, I remember the lines. I could, I could tell you exactly what the scene was. I was just so, I was so excited and so impressed. And in my head, I was pitching lines too. And I didn't say them, but it gave me the confidence to think, oh, I could do this. Um, so then I, uh, when I, when I had, <clears throat> when I had uh, lunch with, his name is Lowell Gans. And um, these two guys create, you know, wrote all these movies like Splash, Parenthood, CD Slickers. They went on to a big film career. Um, he went over my scripts and he said to me, you know what? He said, and we sat on the fancy side of the commissary, which was really fun while well, the stars come in. He said, you have no idea what a story is. I'm going to tell you what you wrote. And he didn't have the scripts in front of him. And he told me the two scripts in order of the scenes. I mean, he's like a genius. And he said, you have five stories here. You have this story, that story. So he said, you can learn format. He said, but what you do have is you're funny and funny can't be taught. Yep. So, you know, he said, what you need to do, he said, first of all, you need to learn what a story is. There's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's the setup. And then in the middle, there's, uh-oh. And then you have the, you know, the, the solution in the end. And, and I, it's, such, it's such a simple thing to say, but I didn't have it like that. And so he said, and you need to move to LA. And he said, I have three shows. I have three pilots. And if any of them go, you'll get a job. So I moved to LA. And, you know, so I, I can stop there if you want to ask. I don't, no, I don't no, want to. No, it's fantastic. We're all in the edge of our seats. <laughs> you moved to LA and what happened? <laughs> okay. So I moved to LA and my, I, I, my brother came with me. We drove out. And, and, and I want to say, you know, it's, this is another thing, a point to make. It's a really big decision because you have to sacrifice. You have to want it so bad. You're willing to leave your family, your friends, your life 3,000 miles away from me and go seek your fame and fortune, which may or may not happen. You don't really know. 
I didn't go away to college. I went to college, but I didn't go away. So this is this is just like getting in the car and going. So my brother had heard that fraternity houses rented rooms in the summer. So we went to UCLA and um, it was like the animal house of the block. Oh, boy. <laughs> I was still in UCLA. It was right across the street. Uh, uh, I know exactly we, where that is because I grew up in Avenue. LA. I know that exact street that you would have been on right behind campus. And yeah, it was and really nice mansions, except mine wasn't. <laughs> mine was not the converted mansion. Mine was Animal House. Oh. So my brother gets a room that's actually pretty good overlooking up. He has like a whole patio. And I get this horrible room with this like half curtain. And it's all guys. There, there are no women in, in this place and transients. And then it was opposite, uh, UC, UC, like I said, UCLA, and they had a mental health clinic. So they had one completely crazy person. No, they had two completely crazy people who were there to go to the facility. <clears throat> you know, they stole food from me as I was cooking it. And just some that really sounds like a lot of great food. material is what that sounds like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then what happened was I had like a little royal typewriter, you know, and I wrote every day and I, I snuck into the studio. I went to Paramount because I knew I had been there already. So, you know, I, I saw how you get in. So I just saw that you just walk in this one entrance was the side entrance. You park on the street and you and you'd walk and you just say hi to the guard. So I walked in when the other people were walking in. I went, hi. So after a while, they thought I worked there. Oh so my I, God. It's a nice passport of being a friendly woman, by the way. Yeah. You're just like, hi, I belong here. And you just walk in. That's amazing. It would never, yeah. It wouldn't, it wouldn't happen today. They, I'm oh, sure. I, don't know that. <laughs> I used to work. I, I would think they'd have security. I could tell you one trick if you want to try it. Go <laughs> lunchtime at Universal and they all come out one gate and then they go back in and nobody's, you know, nobody's checking it. That's another, like, that's another like really good way to do it. Just oh go God. with the crowd. So, um, Anyway, so I wrote, I went to the studio and the three pilots didn't sell. The three, the, the promised job did not happen. Oh, wow. It didn't sell. And, and to do the pilot, other people got the job. There was the guy's cousin. He, he had first position. Classic. The nepotism yeah, so wins. <laughs> yeah, three didn't go. And then I, you know, I got an apartment and I shared with somebody and it was a one bedroom. You know, you really... Really, I lived on a budget. It was fun, UCLA. It was really, really fun. But I got free did haircuts. Did you have savings? Were you like working a side hustle job? Like, why, how were you surviving during this time? Well, what I did was um, when I was in graduate school, I worked for the college in public relations and advertising. And so for two years, I saved money. So I saved up, and this is a long time ago, I saved up $7,000. And that 7,000 had to last me forever. I, I didn't know how long I would. I mean, in my mind, I was going to get a job in one minute, but I, I was pretty frugal. And um, yeah, so I had that money. So very, when I realized the three pilots were done, I got a temp job. So I did some, something, I was Xeroxing scripts right next to the Writers Guild. I was doing, I, I only had like three temp jobs. I wasn't real thrilled with them. Worked in an eye doctor's office. It was like, this is not what I want to be doing. And I went, it was 10 months later and I went home for a visit. And in that time, that same guy that was helping me gave my script to a, a writer producer named Ron Levitt, who eventually created Married with Children. Yeah. And um, he liked my script. And I did talk to him and I remember him saying right before I went home, he said, this is better than 75% of what we pay for. Oh my and God, I, I should wow. tell you that at that point I had written five scripts. I don't want to make it sound like I just showed up, you know, so I had five and the first two were really terrible. I didn't know it at the time, of course, and three was better. Four was probably in the zone. And again, I had these, you know, I had this guy, the first guy helping me, Bob, his name was Babalu Mandel. He was the one that would give me notes on it. So I got very close to the zone, came home <clears throat> And um, it was 10 months later and I kind of felt like a failure. I thought I went out there and I thought I was going to get a job and I don't have a job. And, and also there were no answering machines. You know, it was the stagecoach times. And so if there was anything, I gave my father's phone number at work. There's no, otherwise you'd have to sit by the phone. And they called. Ron Levitt called and said, it was my father. <laughs> I wasn't there. 
and said, tell Cindy if she wants a job, she has a job. And that was an apprentice writing job on a show called The Bad News Bears yeah. at, at Paramount. And um, I was just throwing, you know, I, so it was nice. I went home and then I went back with a real job. What is an apprentice writing job? So what they did back then, they, they have forms of it now also. Gary Marshall started a program and he called it an apprentice writer program. The right, it was not sanctioned by the Writers Guild. The Writers Guild had their own, and they probably still have their own apprentice writer program, which means that you work, if you're in the Writers Guild one, let's say you work for 16 weeks and you're paid a certain amount of money. At the end of the 16 weeks, the show has to decide whether to add you on as a full writer. Some shows didn't want to do that. You're not going to be good enough in 16 weeks. So they'd rather hire a real writer. But but what he did is we were called research assistants on paper. So the Writers Guild didn't know what we were doing. We were not research. There was no research. So we would just be writers. You just, you know, in a writer's room, everybody's sitting there equally. So we were just writers and paid, you know, $200 a week. At that time, I was paid $200 a week. And the staff writer uh, who had the same job as me and was fired, the one I shared a, an office with, and i tell you why later, um, he got $1,000 a week, just to give you some reference point, doing, he, you know, doing the same kind of a job. And then I was on that show, and then that show was canceled. And those producers went on to Laverne and Shirley and asked me to go with them. Oh, and I ended up on the show that I wrote a spec for when I knew nobody. Isn't that amazing? And then you're there. Were you intimidated at all? Were you just so thrilled to be able to dive in and work on that amazing show? The actresses were just so incredible and so hilarious. I mean, everyone on that show is just zany and awesome. It was a dream come true. Hmm. Remember, I had worked already on that other show. So it wasn't it wasn't my first job. So I, I knew what I knew what the job I knew what the job was. So it was the, the, so this was pure excitement just imagine the show that you just love more than anything that you end up writing stuff that they say i, I you know it was unbelievable and the other you thing the only women in that room in laverne and shirley yeah. in the writer's room yeah. yeah we we had a bunch of women um you know most of the shows were mostly men but gary marshall hired a lot of women so we you know it, it was a balance uh, of of women, definitely. That was, that was pretty forward thinking for him back in the day because you don't really hear a lot about that. We were treated equally. That's beautiful. There was never ever any issue that I had. I had two issues. It wasn't anybody that I worked with on a regular basis because these are nerdy nice guys. You know, these are the Jewish nice comedy writers. They're not. Most of them were really right. like, you know, people you grew up with and. You well, know, they, were really wholesome too. Exactly. So, so yeah, they were, very, you know, it, it, you felt like an equal. And, you know, the other thing is these writers were great of my entire career. You know, it's funny, the, the, the best rooms in, in some ways were the beginning ones because these guys, I told you, they, you know, a couple of them went on to these great film careers. They just happened to be like, you know, you hear about the, the shows in the 50s. And those writers' rooms with um, Neil Simon and Woody Allen and Mel Brooks and you know and Sid Caesar and all those. This with this group yeah, was like they were really funny. Moore and everything. Yeah, and so it could be very intimidating. You're a new writer, and and he hired a lot of writers, tons of people. So you had a room of like 14 people, and so if it's quiet and you want to pitch a joke, and it and it bombs. You have 14 people just look down quietly. Oh. <laughs> it's like horrible. <laughs> and then if you win, you have 14 people laughing. So, you know, you feel some pressure. The only thing is, is when you're new, you know, there's not that much pressure on you. But some of the producers, what they would do is they would say, hey, and they'd say your name. So you got anything? You know, they, they would try to encourage you to speak. So what tips do you have for us being in a writer's room? A lot of my audience are aspiring TV writers and um, they've been staffed or they want, you know, to move to the next level of their career and become a showrunner. I think, you know, 
Um, one of the things that was great about being an apprentice writer is they gave us a lot of rules right from the beginning and told us what we could do and not do. And, and those rules applied pretty much to every show that I ever worked on, all these different rooms and producers and showrunners. And, and, and um, I think that, you know, a lot of it seems like common sense, but you'd be surprised at what people do and, and say. So, you know, one of the things is if you pitch something, let's say, let's say, you know, you have the script, everybody has a script and we're going to rewrite the script, right? So they, they ask you to come in with your notes. Um, you know, they might send you off, or you might have it the day before and you come in with your notes to, you know, pitch ideas. So one of the things is you can never say, I don't like this or this doesn't work without having an idea of how to fix it. So, and you'd get blasted for that if you just go, I don't think this works. So this isn't very funny. And you should remember that somebody else wrote that and chances are they were on staff. So you don't really want to hurt somebody's feelings. Um, so you're trying to make it better. You can replace a line. And, and also what happens is when you see it on its feet, when you see a run through and there are spots, you know, you stand with your script and then you check off what works and then you write something so you know which, which didn't get the laughs, those lines have to be changed. So, you know, you're going to change them, but it's the way you say it. You say, you know, how about this or that? Or sometimes they're leading it and they'll say, we need this replaced and everybody's pitching pitching on it. But the, the other thing is, is what some people do is they pitch a joke that, and then they'll pitch it nine more times when they've said, no, mm. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't, you know, and then and a lot of things. It's like, sometimes what people will do is they'll take the line and kind of adjust it into their words. And it's like, don't, don't say dish instead of plates. That's, you know, that's not going to be helpful either. You know, um, and most rooms are really friendly. You know, they're very few. I only heard of one room that everybody was arguing and screaming and, you know, but most rooms, the people are really nice and, and laughing and getting along and enjoying. That's why we pick comedy. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I know you got some great stories. The story that I, I think I met you through was the first post I saw of yours was the grizzly bear. Uh, on set. And that was just crazy to me. I'd love to hear that one. I'd love to hear any others you want to share with us because you have some amazing stories. Okay. So <clears throat> yeah, that was uh, on Laverne and Shirley. And that was, uh, so what happened was I was hired as a single entity and um, you know, a lot of shows really do like partners. Um, and so what time, so sometimes they might put you together. There was, so there was another apprentice writer and they had a pilot um, they had a pilot that was going on and it was a single camera pilot. So it meant while they were shooting it, you'd be feeding lines if something didn't work in this particular, there was no audience or anything. So they said, we need two people. So they picked me or I said, I want to go. I don't really remember. And then this other woman, Lisa, who became my partner, uh, we went and um, we were, it was really fun. You know, they're, they're doing it in front of you and they're shooting it and they're saying, we need a line here. And then you're, you're throwing out stuff. And then what happened was they had to graduate from this apprenticeship program. You would get a script, but they didn't have enough really scripts to go around. So they just said, the two of you, you'll, you'll get a script together. So that's really how we were put together. And it just, we just became partners from that. So the script that they gave us, um, yeah, so I, I, I don't remember whose idea that the script was. And it was about Laverne. Laverne has a cousin that's visiting from Italy. And um, he likes, I don't know why, but he, or I don't remember why he likes to go to the zoo. <laughs> I don't know if he had a job at the zoo or he goes to the zoo every day. And um, again, I, <laughs> I can't tell you why, but a bear escapes from the zoo and ends up in their apartment. That's, so when we first wrote, wrote it, it was supposed to be a lion. We wrote it as a lion. And then the, the, they have, they use these wranglers who said, well, a lion is too dangerous with women. If either of them have their period, the lion will bite them. <laughs> so, so, so fun. Just yeah, like you Yeah. Lions <laughs> will just, well, <laughs> and they're not that polite. Oh my God. So, um, would be that, and you know, it's really, really fun. What's really fun is when you think of crazy things for actual, they were great. These two women would do anything, Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams. And so you can make them do stuff. That's what's like really fun. It's like, you can think, oh, we could put them here. We could tie them up. We could glue them oh. together. 
<laughs> you you could like, and if you don't like them, you know, like we would say to actors, you know, well, I guess your 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 part's going to be you're in a coma for a year. You know, you could do all kinds of fun stuff to the actors. So anyway, they told us we could have a bear, <laughs> which you think would be, might be even scarier because they're pretty big and ferocious looking. So. They they have a bear. So so in the script, there's a point that yes, the says, clip is on YouTube, by the way. So you can go look it up and watch it as you have heard, listened to Cindy's story. Yeah. No. So um, there is a line in the script that says um, the bear enters. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an actor. <laughs> so <laughs> what's so remarkable about these two actresses is if if you know the Laverne and Shirley set they're sitting on a couch facing the, the camera of course right and the bear is going to come in the door behind them and they know a bear is going to come behind them and they can't tip that joke they're mm. talking and they can't show any fear nothing and the the bear was cha- was trained on marshmallows so in the luckily in the script in the in the series um, they, they ate scooter pies, you know, which was like, you know, like a, you know, pastry thing, you know. And so they're talking and the bear is going to go for the, for the marshmallow that's in the scooter pie. So as they're talking, this bear comes in and heads right for them in between their faces. And, and, and so you have a bear right behind them. And then, you know, one of them realizes and they start screaming, but the whole thing, what's remarkable about it is the whole thing is choreographed and you have this animal, you know, you know, that you need to hit its marks and to do certain things and not just like do nothing. And it works so incredible. And they were scared. Of course they were scared. There's this bear. And they used also Pepsi. I, th- I saw somebody put yeah. uh, Pepsi. That, that's, that's, that's correct. And so, you know, to, to watch the scene is, uh, uh, is really remarkable because th- these actresses were really good. But I'll tell you something that's funny. It was one of the first bigger jokes that I had in a script. And what happened was it was controversial at the time. And this is going to sound so weird. <clears throat> the, what happened is so this bear is, you know, <laughs> they're scared and they're screaming. And um, one says, stand still and it flies away. No, those are the bees. <laughs> that bear is bees. So um, there's a line where the, the, the cousin comes back and he yells at something in Italian to the bear. And one of them says, what does that mean? And they said, it must be Italian for don't kill the virgins. You weren't allowed to say virgins. That so, virgin was censored on TV at that time? You couldn't say virgins? Wow. No. Nope. My, my, no, my, my times have changed. <laughs> yeah. So what we did is in a rewrite, put a line that's much worse. So that what happens is that the producers would bargain. This is, you know, the standards and practices, you know, the censors. So they go, you can't say that. And they said, well, we'll take that out, but we want virgins back. <laughs> Oh, that's so, so that's the leverage is like, we'll take out the, what would the, so something was worse than virgins. <laughs> yeah. They just put it in just knowing that. Yeah. That, and that was a really common thing to do is put in something even from the beginning to protect a line, um, something really terrible and then act mad. And then they go, all right, you could have that one. But yeah, that might've been a first of using that word in a, in a sitcom. It sounds so, so crazy. Wow. Um, yeah, it sounds mild today after South Park and all the things that we're used to with <laughs> modern time, modern comedy. I mean, comedy evolves too. I mean, it's interesting to see how it has evolved and changed. You, I think you and I had a, a discussion about that, you know. Um, yeah, that <laughs> comedy like isn't funny anymore and how upset we are about it. <laughs> exactly. That yeah. yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings because people are very passionate about their shows, you know, but what, what I, in, in general, one of the things I'd like to say is that the things that are nominated for comedies, best comedy to me are dramedies. They could be good shows, but I'm not laughing. Um, and I, I think it's, I, I don't, I don't know what the problem is. I don't, I don't, I, I, I tend to think they want their shows to be funny and that 
the joke should be stronger. Um, there was a time when to be a comedy writer, you needed to be funny. And I don't know. I'm, I, I, don't, I really don't know what, what to think. But I have seen a couple of things that have made me laugh out loud. Um, one of the shows that, and I was so happy because I, I saw somebody suggest these shows. You know, people have been telling me what to watch and I just don't like this. I don't like that. But I've seen two things that actually made me laugh out loud. One is called The Other Two. Oh, yeah, everybody loves that. It's on HBO, isn't it? Um, is it? I don't know. Is it on yeah, HBO? Well, we'll IMDb it. I don't know. I don't know. But what it's about is... Um, well, I'll it on HBO. It, yeah, it's about a Justin Bieber type of character, kid who becomes a sensation overnight. And then the other two, the other two siblings that are much older than him and are kind of nowhere. Oh, so, and, it, and it, the jokes are funny. They're It's actually pretty good. I like, you know, one of them calls, uh, he, and he, in real life, Justin Bieber has the manager scooter. So the manager is streeter. <laughs> and they, one of the siblings calls the kid to talk to him because he can't talk to you. We're, we're compressing his Adam's apples. So he doesn't grow. You know? so, oh. <laughs> and the other one that I thought was pretty funny, um, is Pen 15. Oh, yeah, which Debbie Liebling sold to Hulu. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, that makes me laugh, too. So there's hope. There's hope. You know, I watch shows with my son, too, and my favorite of his shows of late that really has me in stitches is a show called Alien TV. And it's about a an alien journalist team, you know, like investigative journalism team who's come to earth to investigate the phenomenon of human beings and they get everything wrong. So as the aliens explore like, oh, what's fashion? They don't understand anything and they get everything wrong. And there's no English spoken in the entire show. It's all, you know, beep, boop, 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 but they do it with the voices and the visual humor. And we laugh so hard at that show. It is genius. Uh, It's one of my favorites. Alien TV. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that. Yeah, I think it's on but, Netflix. Yeah, I'm always like, like the last thing I saw that really made me laugh was episodes. And I've honestly gone back to rewatch it because it's so funny. The The season finale of, of the, the first season was one of the funniest season finales I just have ever seen. And that show grew and grew into itself which I, I feel like a lot of shows aren't given that chance. And yet it takes time for the room to find itself and for the characters to find themselves. And sometimes they'll just get funnier. Um, and that was one of those shows where it just, I think it just got funnier as it went along. It was so hysterical. I loved it. Yeah, you know what's funny? And the other thing is political correctness. It, it, it has really uh, taken away a lot of avenues for jokes. Uh, some people might think that's a good thing. Um, but an example of taught, you talked about episodes, uh, blind people might object to that. There's, you know, the wife of, um, yeah. Right. Who Matt LeBlanc ultimately ends up dating like the, the, the head network guy's wife who he divorces. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff I know that I wrote, you wouldn't be able to do anymore. You just wouldn't. So, um, you know, Mel Brooks has talked about that too, political correctness is killing uh comedy and so what's happened is they've moved to sex jokes oh, that's uh, why it's and so bathroom blue, humor right? and what that's why it's gotten so blue i yeah. think so and and i don't mind sex jokes if they're funny yeah. but if you watch saturday night live it's just i don't know what they're doing on that show um it's just a bunch of sex jokes that are just cringeworthy to me. I mean, I, I don't really like that kind of stuff. Um, I like funny sex jokes. I mean, I thought that I was watching Sex Education, that that show, I like that. Yeah, it is great. I mean, it's funny. Did, when you were coming up um, and you were being mentored by these incredible producers and writers, were they teaching you joke structure along with like you talked about story and things like what was that experience like for you? Yeah. You know, it's really funny that you said that. Um, Gary Marshall has, has, has had a really great story. Um, and, I'll, and I'll come back to my, my own story on my first show. Gary Marshall said that what, his first show was the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, yeah. And he said he and his partner were writing, uh, they were writing, it was their turn to write a script and they wrote something in it 
that Rob uh, puts his cummerbund on funny. That's what they wrote. <laughs> so um, Carl Reiner comes over to them and says, you wrote. He puts his cummerbund on funny. He said, the guard gate, the gate guard, go write that line. I'm paying you a lot of money to write what he does. <laughs> so people don't realize, you know, and, and, and it was interesting. This is a different story, but I just want to touch on it. Um, Lucille, you know, I worked on Alice and the people on Alice were, wrote every I Love Lucy, Bob uh, oh, Carroll no. Jr. and Madeline Davis. They wrote every single I Love Lucy. And so it was really fun to know them. And everything that they wrote for Lucy, which of course was such a physical show, they performed themselves. So when, so before they wrote it, they knew, like if they handcuffed each other together, you know, they were handcuffed together, how? They didn't just, just write their handcuffed together and they figure out what happens. They would physically do everything. And then um, when I, I, I think, you know, I met Lucy, um, she said, I'm not funny at all, but tell me what it is and I will make it funny. So um, everything is written. And people don't realize on Mork and Mindy, Robin Williams was not ad-libbing the show. It, every line was written. Did he occasionally ad-lib something? Yeah, yeah, but pretty much every line was, pretty much every, every line was written. But what I wanted to, to, to talk to you about was one of the things that they taught was don't do the obvious jokes of the day. So like you wouldn't do a Justin Bieber joke. You know, that's easy. That's like they're saying your hairdresser could write that, you know, if you're going to do a reference joke, you got to be clever. And so remember, this was a long time ago, but they gave us three jokes never to do. And so one was, what am I, chopped liver? (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) The other one is that they don't like is if there's a movie of the day, you know, so back then it was close encounters. Don't do close encounters of a special kind or whatever. Don't, don't do that. And um, don't do, you know, like, like I said, a a celebrity of the day joke. So there was this one guy that I shared an office with who um, thought he was better than everybody else. And he was never there. He was going off on meetings all the time for his film career. And, you know, how he got the job was he slept with an executive, but we didn't know that at the time. We just thinking, how does this guy, like not get fired. So, <laughs> this guy not get fired. <laughs> so he wasn't there for that talk about the three jokes that you never put in a script. So he was, he, he comes back from his meeting and they give him a scene to write. And then, you know, you, everybody sits around and you read the scenes together. And he had the three, he had two of the three. He had two of the three that you're never supposed to. He had a a close encounters and a joke and a dolly. It was at the time it was a Dolly Parton joke. He didn't do one of my chapel. He missed that one, (laughs) but he he, he had the others. And and so that's what, you know, they're paying you not to write lines like, oh, where a character says very funny. You know, you've got to come up with the line. So that was one of the things, one of the things that they told us, and I I would modify it, but they were trying to teach us this, bend every line. They would say, you know, bend every line, like don't have a normal line. So instead of somebody walking into the room and say, hi, you'd say, how's it hanging? You know, (laughs) and I'm exaggerating, but, but, you know, they're paying you to write interesting lines and you don't have, of course, set up joke. Uh, uh, one cam- single camera shows aren't like that. It's not, but if you watch any of the, the multi-camera shows that are on the networks, they're still doing setup joke. That's not any different. Right. Set up punch tag. Yeah, completely. My favorite, I think of those shows that, I mean, I, I just watched it again this morning because it's on all the time is the golden girls and what right. a great show and example <laughs> of like how hilarious actresses can take hilarious material and really run with it. It was so great. Yeah. And, you know, people think sometimes that all the jokes in in a multi-camera show are very broad, but they're not. If you look at a lot of these shows, they're just done really, really well. Um, Instead of that loud screaming with the, with the audience, I'm not talking about those kind of shows, but you know, like an example would be like in an old show, like Roseanne, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she was having a fight with her son who probably was like eight at the time on the show. And he, he says what kids say. He, he said, I hate you. And he, he runs off and her next line would be just as good today. And then she said, then I've done my job. You know, it's like, it's a good line. It's a good line. Then it would be a good line now because it's character. You know, that's the other thing that's really important is you can't give jokes blindly to anybody. It has to sound like a a line that that character would say. It's like, if you cover it up, who's speaking a line, you should know, you should know who's saying those lines. So yeah, we were taught a lot of the things a lot of the things like that. Um, and like, I, I, you know, my first show was a single camera show, which is, was very, very unusual that now they all are. And I, and I also worked on the first dramedy, which was the days and my and nights of Molly Dodd. That was completely different, very not joke oriented. And I, and I hated it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, let's go back. Wait, wait, let's go back. Cause I don't want to miss your story about the, uh, the writer you shared an office with. Who got fired? Oh, so that, <clears throat> yeah, so that guy, the one that he he oh, it was it was pretty great because everybody hated him that he he walked into that. It wasn't a trap that was set up, but he walked right into it. And um because he was connected to this executive, um, he was protected for a little while, but they couldn't stand him. And he was he was not showing up more and more, which was good because I had an office by myself. And then one day <laughs> They said, don't come back. They got permission to get rid of him and, and, and they got rid of him. And that was the end of his career. He just, he just blew it. You know, he would have had, he would have had a career, if he but was, yeah, he was gone. <laughs> if he was actually funny, didn't have a huge ego. He tried to make up for it with that huge cock, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> with the eye. Right? <laughs> He's like, that's getting far in life. <laughs> yeah. The guy, the, the executive was a really good looking guy. And they would always say, you know, I remember the guys would say, I don't understand. Women drop their pants for, for him. And, and he don't like anybody. <laughs> they eventually found out. Yeah. Why? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's wild. Well, I want to hear one of your Robin Williams stories because we loved him so much. And it was just so tragic. We lost him so soon. And then not long after we lost Gary Shandling, who I work for and, you know, so, so close to and love so much. And I, I love taking a walk down memory lane with those guys. Two very funny people, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, incredible. Uh, Robin Williams, he was really funny, and um, he was naturally funny. It might be the only show that I worked on that he was as funny, if not funnier, right, than the the people who were writing the lines. Because most of the time, you're writing for people that aren't as funny as you. He, this was the opposite. This is somebody that the standard of jokes had to be very high, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, and it's, you know, there's so many interesting stories about that, that show. So the, the readings would be great. You couldn't wait for him to read the material. You couldn't wait for him to get to your line, your joke. And um, one of the things that happened was one day, I mean, there are some shows that the actors are so big and so exciting that you feel really excited to be in their presence. That's when they were real stars. So what happened is one day I'm walking across the lot by myself. I'm going to the reading. And I hear somebody go, um, yell out, whistle, and then go, wait up. And I look around, and, and it's really the great part of Paramount. If you've been to Paramount, it's where the, the fake sky is. They have like a big, like, billboard size fake sky. And then when they would shoot, they, they'd empty the parking lot, and they'd fill it with water. And they would, you know, they shoot uh, stuff there looking like, um, you know, it's a lake or something. So what happened was I'm I'm walking in this area and I hear this guy go, Hey, wait up. And I turn around and it's Robin. And I'm thinking, he can't be talking to me. (laughs) Why would he be talking to me? And why would he tell me to wait up? So I think it must be somebody behind me. And I, you know, I'm looking around and it's me. And so I'm standing there thinking, wow, this is, this is fun. So he gets up to to me and uh, we start to walk and um, he has nothing to say to me at all. (laughs) I had no idea why he asked me to wait up, but he has nothing. And I'm trying to make small talk with him. I'm asking about, uh, what are you going to do on hiatus? Uh, you know, I'm going to make a movie. What's it about? It's just like a really painful walk because he was actually really very shy. And so, uh, and it was really far away where the, the room, 
the reading room was. So we get to the reading room and he walks, we, we go up there and he walks in and he's becomes a different person. He's just funny and loud and nutty and running around. But that walk, that's who he really was. He was just a really kind of one-on-one, a very shy person. So he, could um, on. So he had that switch that he could flip on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Gary Shandling could never turn it off. He was always funny and always just on as long as I Um, knew him. And I think it wore him out. He would get withdrawn. He would go through moments where he'd just go, I I just feel really withdrawn and I just can't see anybody for a while. And he would just like get really private and close all the doors. And we'd be like, is Gary okay? What's happening? But he needed to like rest and restore his energy because he just couldn't stop. He couldn't stop. He had no off button. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I hear stories like that. I heard a story about um, Albert Brooks, that if he just went to a party, I heard a story about him and Rob Reiner, they had gone to a party. And Albert Brooks was very funny. All the comedians always said he was the funniest person. And then he would hit like with some big joke and he'd say, we could leave now. And then he'd get out to the car and he'd go, no, I got to go back. <laughs> I could do better. Oh. And I, I, I saw an actor, Robin Williams' hero was Jonathan Winters. Yeah. And he was on D. Martin's show a lot, and what a delightful human being. So, but what would happen is he was like Gary Shandling. He had to be on every single minute. And so I was in the commissary one day, and, J- and Jonathan in the commissary starts doing a routine of his. So everybody is quiet, and he does this. This he had a baseball routine or something. And uh, I, you know, then he walked down. I happened to be just walking out with him, and he said he was with his manager. And he said, I could do better. I got to go back. And he goes, no, no, you can't go back. We got to go. No, no, I, I know I could get a bigger laugh. I mean, it was just like this obsession. And if anybody on the show ran into Jonathan, he would start doing an improv with you. He said, you, I saw you on that mountain, you know? And then, so when we were in our offices and Jonathan was outside, they said, you can't go out. He won't let you come back. It's comedic <laughs> assault. <laughs> oh man, that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> my uh my dad was a golfer and he grew up in he actually grew up in Hollywood he went to Hollywood High and um he was on the golf team in high school and Bob Hope was his golf partner and he would go often in the mornings to the Toluca Lake Country Club and he'd go before school so he'd be out there you know the crack of dawn hitting golf balls and he was often joined by W.C. Fields who said every single time he teed up the the his, his club he would look at my dad and say hit the ball in the ass and then he'd swing. And after weeks of this, the club approached my dad and said, you know, is WC Fields still playing with you? And my dad's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's great. I love his company. And the club said, well, you know, he's not a member here. <laughs> <laughs> and so my dad was talking to Bob Hope and said, you know, WC Fields has been playing golf with me every morning. And you know, he's not a member here. And, and so Hope just went to the management and said, put him on my tab. And take care oh. of it so, and get, gifted him that that membership. But yeah, it was some of my my dad's happy memories of the those eras. Uh, he had a lot of fun with them. That's a great story. I know they're fun. My dad had amazing stories. He dated Marilyn Monroe. He was engaged oh. to Shirley Temple. Like yeah, the reams of he was wanting to write a book at the end of his life. He had a crazy story about Bob Hope when they were traveling in Chicago and they dealt with like the mob and there, this is, I'll tell this story. Actually, I can go on the record because my dad is dead now, but um, he, they were out partying and they went to the red light district in Chicago. They were like, we want to have some fun. And the cabbie was like, all right, I'll drive you. You know, and they drove to the warehouse district and they get out and they walk into this warehouse, you know, this is a whorehouse, right? And they get up to the, the top floor and they opened the door and every single person inside the room was naked, all the men holding their clothes on their lap. And they walk in, they realize the whorehouse is being robbed. And Bob Hope walks in with my dad. And of course, everyone recognizes him. And the thieves were just like, oh, my God, you know, you've got to just give us all your jewelry. And they they bolted. They ran. So then everyone was able to put their clothes back on. But Bob Hope was really devastated because he's like, they got my watch that the president gave me. So my dad is like, oh, my God. And my dad was in cosmetics in early years. And in those years, he worked for Helena Rubinstein, among others, and Revlon and stuff. So he goes, I'm going to make some phone calls, you know, with my golf buddies and see if we can get your 
your watch back. So my dad made some phone calls and they were playing in a golf tournament in Chicago. And the second day of the golf tournament, my dad walks into the hotel where they're staying and the, the clerk at the desk said, hey, Jack, you got a package. And my dad gets his little package and takes it up to the room and the phone rings from one of his mob friends and says, hey, we we got that taken care of for you. And um, my they're like, did you get the package? And he's like, oh, great. Yeah, I got the package. Um, so he opens it and he there it is. The watch. They got it. They got Bob, Bob Hope's watch and next to two left ears. Oh, like, oh my God, dad, what did you do? And he goes, I flushed him down the toilet and gave Bob his watch back. That's an incredible story. I know it is an incredible story. It was like, dad, you've got to tell this story. He's like, no, no, I don't want to embarrass Bob Hope's, you know, family. And oh, that's a really good one. Yeah, I know. Dad, dad was a great storyteller. I feel like that's where I get a lot of my love. of uh, story. You inherited it. Yeah. He knew I would be a writer. We had a very strange, difficult relationship, but early on, like from second grade, he's like, she's going to be a writer. I started writing then. And he just really saw it and knew like, he had, he had kind of like in that intuitive sense of like, this is going to be your path kid. He's like, you'll be a late bloomer. He was right about that too. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to, I want to ask you one more question and I know it's uh, one that's close to your heart as well as to everyone else, you know, who, who listens both to the podcast and who's with us live here on the call, which is, tell us how you sell a freelance script. What sells? I'd love to hear that from you. Sex sells, death sells, reunion sell, romance sells. That's it. It's like, I'm gonna, I'll give you some examples of, of things. My partner and I were very good at selling uh, freelance. And then when I was uh, alone, I was also very good at it. Um, there's, there's a few things that one of the things, if you get to go in and pitch somewhere, I mean, you want to talk about existing shows rather than, uh, pilots. Um, yeah. Or I mean, any, all of the above. This was all, would also apply if you are on staff and it's your turn to come up with a, a story. You know, one of the, one of the ways that you can sell something is pick them, uh, not the star. I mean, everybody wants to write for the star. So the staff always will, uh, you know, every, everybody wants to, if it's whatever show it is, but if it's the kid in the series, nobody wants to write about that, but they need stories for the, like the ABC story. They're focusing that a story on the star. Mm-hmm. So you pick your main story to be not the star <laughs> and you have a better chance of selling something. The other thing is taking a shot is, um, Pitching a holiday show, the staff hates writing holiday shows. And if you could find a twist on a holiday show, now you could get into trouble like that because if they have their holiday show, then, but you know, you go and you pitch a couple of ideas, you know, you, you, you do three or four ideas anyway. Um, I had a, an idea for Married with Children and I knew it should be a Valentine's Day show, but I didn't know if they had their Valentine's Day show. So I pitched it as a not Valentine's Day show, hoping that they would say, hey, that could be our Valentine's Day show. And that's what happened. <laughs> oh, but I protected myself. <clears throat> and, and what the story was, um, and they did buy it and they did shoot it. And it's one of, if they show it, you know, like reruns on Valentine's Day. Um, they, it was based on something that happened to me, which was I, I liked this kid when I was in fifth grade. And, and we met like every day you know, for three days in a row. And, and then he never showed up again. <laughs> it's kind of like the rest of your life, right? They, they just don't show up someday. So um, what happened was years had gone by and I was in college and my bro- I always felt bad. Even though I was only like 10, I felt always felt bad when I'd see that kid, that kid wouldn't look at me. And so my brother said to me one day um, in college, he goes, Larry Miller says, hello. I go, you know, Larry Miller, my brother was four years younger than me. He goes, Oh yeah, I play basketball with him. And I said, he he said that? He goes, he always asked for you. I said, but you never told me? He's been saying this to you for years, but you've never told me? He said, I oh. forgot. So I thought that could be kind of a funny married with children story. Maybe um, somebody gave Kelly, um, uh, you know, I'm going to do it at the Valentine's Day, you know, a note, but it ended up to be Valentine's Day card and give it to your brother, but she forgets. And it's six years later, and, and in the show, what they do is they she 
everybody has Valentine's except Bud. See, again, right for the, for the lesser character uh, instead of Al, right for him. And so um, he, she says, I, you do have a Valentine's. It's six years old. And so then he sets out on a quest to find his one true love, who now has become a rock star and is, Aww. you know, like in a hotel and they've barricaded her and whatever. So that was like, but again, you see, like it's love. Another one that I, that I sold, uh, this was my partner and I sold, um, was to Mama's family. Now, one of the things that you knew about Mama, if you watch that show, is she was kind of, you know, she was old. She was a prude. Wouldn't it be fun to send her to a reunion? Now, we pitched it as a high school reunion. They said, well, in the story, uh, in the show, she never went to high. She dropped out of high school. So could we do junior high? Yeah, you could do that. So wouldn't it be funny to have her <clears throat> go to her reunion? But she's invited to her reunion, but she doesn't want to go. And, you know, there's a reason why she doesn't want to go, but she doesn't want to say it because she's embarrassed. So her friend is saying, oh, come on, you know, you could tell me. And she said, well, I, I had a nickname. I, I was known as Hot Pants. And so the friend says, um, it's 100 years ago. Nobody's going to remember that. And so what, what happened was in the story, she had gone on a date with somebody and the guy purposely ran out of gas and had her alone somewhere. And then when he, he comes back, um, he lies about her, that all this stuff happened on the date. So now she's going to get a chance to confront that guy in front of the high school reunion. But what's really funny is she's been, she now thinks she can go and she's safe. The minute she goes into that reunion, they go, hi, hot pants, hi, hot as people are walking by. So, you know, those kinds of stories, if you could, you know, find something about a character that, you know, is a secret in the past or, you know, can make them uncomfortable in some way. Those kind of things, um, those kind of things sell. Here's this, this is a really interesting story. There was a guy, he wrote a spec Golden Girls. And um, he, he wrote, it was, a, it was about, I don't remember which character you might remember. She has an old friend come to visit and she's gay. And then she... You know, I guess she she liked. I don't remember if it was Blanche. I don't remember I mean, which I remember one. This episode, hundred percent, really good episode. And it was a spec, and and it was nominated for an Emmy. The guy wasn't even on staff, oh. and it was nominated. Of course, rewritten to death. Yeah, yeah. Francine remembers it was Rose. Then the the woman was in love with her. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I, I don't know if it won. I don't really remember, but. Can you imagine it was, you know, they bought, it was the only time I ever heard that they bought, you know, I heard it a few times. They bought a spec script because the guy was such a good writer and um, it went that far. So you don't hear about that a lot, but it's a good story. Amazing. Now that's how Gary Shandling got his break was um, a spec that he wrote for, it was either Sanford and Son or um, Welcome Back Cotter. And that got him in, you know, as a friend of his who is the the like an uncle who was the producer and then passed it through and said, yeah, we want to meet with him. Let's bring him on. And he was working on that show. And then Sanford and Son was across the hallway from the other writer's room. And they were like, oh, we hear you're funny. We liked your episode. We want you, too. And he was already working on those two shows on wow. staff before he even got an agent. One of his friends is like, you should get an agent. He's like, I don't even know how to do that. How do I do that? He's like, call my buddy. So he calls the agent and says, hey, I. You know, I'm working on these shows. The agent basically hangs up on him because the agent hears you. He wants to work on these shows. And then the guy called him back and said, you know, wait, wait, did you say you're actually working on these shows? And like and with it in that week, he had Gary set up with 30 meetings all over town, you know, because he was uh -huh. already on shows. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's you just bring up another really good point. Everybody has a very unique story. People get in and in very odd very, very odd ways. Really true. Um, you know, the, the point really is, is just to just keep letting everybody know this is what I want to do and following up on it <clears throat> and taking a chance. You know, I mean, that's a big part of it is taking that chance. And, you know, for every, you know, million no's, all you need is one. You need the one yes. You know, it was like, I remember in the old days going into a club and there'd be all these horrible guys. And somebody said, all you need is one. It doesn't matter that there are all these horrible people. All you need is that one person. And it's the same thing with this.
Yeah, it's really true. The, the, the partners, I call it the partners in believing. You need your partner in believing, whoever that person is who goes, oh, I get it. I love it. And this is, you know, this is of my taste because so much of it is subjective. You know, do they get you? Do they like your sense of humor? Do they love you, especially with, with comedy? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I told you the one show, uh, Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, the first dramedy, that it was a great producer. His name was uh, Jay Tarsus. His, his daughter was Jamie Tarsus. Who, who passed away recently, the, the great, you know, yeah. executive, um, <clears throat> too, too young. But um, he was a really, really funny guy and he wanted to do a serious show. And so he had my partner and I come in and he goes, I didn't read anything of yours, but I want to hire you. And we said, yeah, but we like, we did Laverne and Shirley, you know, you really should read something. No, I don't really need to. Well, we talked him into reading you know, probably some silly show. And so he said, well, I didn't really like it, <laughs> but I still want you. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're in the room. It was, it was a, just like four, it was a very small room and it was a windowless room and there were no jokes. It's just kind of serious. And I thought I have to sit in a windowless room for 12 hours a day, writing something I don't get. Aww. What are we going to do? This is going to, you know, uh, and it was funny. He gave a script to a friend of his, you know, script should be around 30 pages and, and it was 18 pages. So it's like, well, what do we do the, the rest of the show? Just we just keep having they ended up just like she'd be looking at a window and she'd keep seeing the same action. Oh but anyway, God. he came to us and he said, Look, um, I want you to be the head writers. So I'm gonna direct and <laughs> now it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Now we're the head writers. Oh, <laughs> it was just man. like, what are we gonna do? It's, so you know, we had to go talk to him and just said, um, you know, we love you. We wish you were doing like a comedy comedy show, but you know, we're just not the right people. We're just not the right people for what you're doing. And he said, I want you to be the right people. I want you to stay. Wow. That's <laughs> yeah. Because you'll get it. You'll, you'll, you'll make, get it. Trying to you'll make that fit between the, the round peg and the square hole, I guess. Not everybody is. That's the only show I could think of that it was just, and you know, what's really interesting when I saw it on the air, I really liked it. Wow, we just weren't the people. What? We just weren't the people to to write it. That's all. It's just we want jokes. We got a job. We left. We got a job on a you know a, a, you know our kind of show um, the next day. And my father kept saying, "My father kept saying, you're quitting a job. You're quitting a television job. You get paid to do this, and you're quitting it." And it's like, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> just see, it was the only one we ever did that. And I would say it was a career mistake. If if I if I look back, it was a mistake. Really? Yeah. It was a mistake. We should have tried. You know, I ended up liking it. So I don't know. The windowless room sounds pretty daunting. I don't know. There's I think a lot of windowless rooms. there's a lot of a lot of them. Um, and you're sitting there for a very, very long time. And and if it's not funny, you don't want to jump out the windowless. <laughs> <laughs> Busted the wall. <laughs> like we once had, we once had a fantastic office. We had a fantastic office, and then they they kicked us out of that office because they were putting on another show there. <clears throat> and they put us, they they took us up to a floor. I remember it was in, in an office building in Westwood, and they open up what looks like a storage closet, <laughs> and they go, oh, "Here's God. your new office for two people." It was. I said, "But this looks like a storage area because the." One right next to it has that looks the same has boxes in it, and they go, yeah, no, it's an office, but it has no windows, and it's I don't even know if two desks. We I think we had to share a desk. You know? so they, they were they were lying. It really was a storage closet. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Oh, it's funny. I you know, it's cool that you had a writing partner. Do you still keep in touch with her? Oh yeah. Oh, it's so yeah. great. It just got to a point. She just wanted to retire. She just, you know, said, um, you know, I'm done. So it, when I worked for Gary Shandling, it was new information to me that he didn't often write alone. And he always had writers over at the house and they were always working together and bouncing material off of one another. And there was that window into how comedy writers work. And you do need to know what's funny because um, in stand up, at least you have the audience and you're up there and you know, if a joke lands, you know, if you need to tweak your delivery, but if it's going out on, you know, it's a, it's a film, it's TV. Um, how do you cover that? I know Judd Apatow covers it with, he, he films alts. 
So he'll film alts to the jokes, to the punchlines, and then he'll show the movie to an audience while he's editing the film. And if they don't laugh at the joke, he puts the alt in and does another screening to see if they laugh at that one. And then he gradually massages the movie into shape based on the audience's reaction to his jokes as he goes along. Wow. Covering himself. I know. <laughs> thing. I think it's really smart because you've just got to know if a joke lands. It might be funny in your head or, or on the page, but then ultimately, is it funny for someone else? And, you know, you just it can be humbling to make those discoveries. Well, you know, like on, on Mork and Mindy, what would happen is, um, you know, he would he would let, you know, he'd have a great joke at the reading and then they would do the first run through. And then people don't laugh as hard because they heard it the day before. So he'd okay. say, I want I want replacement jokes. Yeah. So then we would work real crazy hours on that show, um, you know, at three in the morning, two in the morning. And so we'd write only a whole new script and oh. then he'd get a big, he'd get a big laugh. And then the next day when he'd hear that, you know, the, the smaller laugh, he'd want all new jokes. So he would have several jokes for each line. And that's how he got a reputation for ad living because if they did three takes, he'd have three jokes. But the people didn't know that they were from earlier in the week. Do you say so? Yeah. He had choices on the fly. Choices. Yeah. And all of them were fine. And occasionally he'd throw in one that he made up. Of course, you know, definitely. (laughs) I want to give him that credit. He was really funny. The king. Cindy Beggle, I have so loved our conversation. You're so fascinating. I love all your stories. Thank you for being with us, for being with us today. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe, like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. Kaya at This Is Kaya, T H I S I S K A I A. And Sylvia at R Writer. That's R W R I T E U R. Get career training and a free ebook, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.